0: May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I want to preach uh, based on our reading from the Gospel, John chapter 12. It's printed in your bulletin there on page 12. It would be helpful to you to, to keep that out and, and keep referencing that. I don't know if you saw uh, this week a story about... It's kind of a cute little story of a, of a little girl, 10-year-old girl, and she met uh, Princess Markle um, and uh, Princess Meghan Markle and Going to be. Thank you. See, I don't keep up with this stuff. When I, just, I saw this story, to be honest, I was on a treadmill, and I was looking at the story... And they were putting the words underneath, so I didn't get... Well, the soon-to-be princess, Meghan Markle. All right. And she told Meghan Markle, who's a, a famous actress. I do know that. I got that part of it right? She said, this little 10-year-old girl said, uh, I hope to be an actress when I grow up someday, too. I want to be a TV actress. And the princess, the you know, soon-to-be princess, encouraged her. The prince encouraged her. And it was kind of a cute, touching, touching scene. But it's it's not a surprise that this little girl said that she wanted to be a famous actress. Because there's been a a study, a poll that's been taken for some time now, UCLA does. What do children want to be when they grow up? Since 2007, the number one thing has been famous. Number one thing is to be famous. And so here you have this famous person meeting this little girl who wants to be her, who wants to be famous. And uh, again, kind of a cute story, but... It represents the values that our culture celebrates and and really kind of promotes the pursuit of celebrity, the pursuit of fame, the pursuit of status. And I thought about that um, as I was meditating on on uh, our gospel reading, what happens to Jesus here, because at this point in the story of Jesus, he's he's at the height of his fame. He's got the world at his feet, so to speak. He's just performed a great miracle. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And it says that many Jews came to believe in Jesus once he performed this miracle. And the uh, religious authorities were threatened by this and they started to make a, a plan to kill him. So he's performed this great miracle. The religious authorities are saying, what are we going to do? The whole world is going after him. Then he comes into Jerusalem And that's Palm Sunday. And the crowds are hailing him as their king. And they're waving palm branches. And we reenact that uh, to a certain degree next Sunday. So Jesus has people proclaiming him king. People are coming to him in faith because of this great miracle. There's opposition growing. And then we see that at this festival, some Greeks had come. The, The feast that's mentioned here in verse 20 is the the feast of the, the Passover and uh, Jews would come over, uh, from all over to Jerusalem, but also non-Jews, God-fearing Gentiles. That's what's meant by Greeks here. doesn't mean necessarily from Greece, but non-Jews coming to Jerusalem for this great feast. And they want to see Jesus. So this is a significant moment in the gospel story. Because you have non-Jews seeking Jesus, Jesus, we would say maybe today we'd say Jesus is uh, Jesus is going going global here. Jesus, Jesus's reputation is expanding beyond Judaism, and so they come to Philip, one of Jesus's disciples, and they say, "Sir, we wish to see Jesus." And Philip went, verse twenty-seven, and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answers them this way. He ignores this. This uh, this desire for an audience with the Greeks, And he just simply says this. The hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. You know, you can imagine that Andrew and Philip as as they're going to to Jesus with this request or even saying to one another, can you believe how big this has gotten? Can you believe how big Jesus has gotten that that non-Jews want an audience with him? And Jesus is on a completely different track. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that the hour has come uh, for, his, for his death. And you see that phrase in the Gospel of John, the hour refers to Jesus' death on the cross. He's getting ready to fulfill his, his destiny. And he uh, even says in, um, in verse 27, for this purpose I have come uh, to this hour. And so um, Jesus sees before him the the cross and uh, the hour has come to him for him to die as the savior of the world. But he says that he will be glorified through this on the cross. He will be glorified because through his death and through his resurrection, he's going to offer eternal life to the whole world, Jew and non Jew. So here's the principle here. Here's the principle. This is the principle that Jesus embodies, and this is the principle that Jesus calls us to live out. First death, then life. First sacrifice, then glory. First the cross, then the crown. First death, then life. And Jesus uses an analogy here of the seed. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit unless... The seed dies, it goes into the ground. Maybe some of you are planting your gardens this time of year and you've got your seed packets. You've got your cucumber or tomato packets or whatever, your beans. And you've got your seed packet, but the seed isn't going to do any good until it gets out of the packet and go into the ground. It's planted into the ground. And then it's got to be changed. It's got to change from a seed through the germination process and die to its seed-like state and become a plant. And then it will bear much fruit. So first death, then life. And Jesus says, now this is the pattern for those who would serve him. So look at that in verse, verse uh, 25. This is Jesus' call to those who want to follow him. Again, he's reached the height of popularity and fame. And uh, people are interested in, in him. And he says, I want you to know what you're getting into uh, when you follow me, when you want to serve me. So verse twenty five, whoever loves his life, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Well, where are you going, Jesus? To the cross. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am the cross, there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, here's the reward. The father will honor me. But first, verse 25, whoever loves his life, loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What does he mean by hating your life? I mean, this life that we've been given is a gift from God. And in that sense, it's a good thing. Life is good. It's a gift from God. But he's using he's using hyperbole when he says hate this life. What he wants us to understand is we must love what he offers more than this life, what this life offers. We must love what the life that he offers more than what this life offers. We must love him more than the things of this world. So it's it's about ultimate values. He's got to become the ultimate uh, value. So he's saying, love, love what I offer to you more than what the world offers. Offers to you and then he he issues this warning in this context. If you love your life in this world, you're going to lose it. (laughs) And let's let's ask the question. Do we do we do we believe what Jesus is saying here? How about people who make the things of this world their ultimate value? And that's what they build their life upon. Do we see this sometimes playing out? I can think of examples and maybe you can, too. Probably we can all think of examples of people we've known or people we've read about or heard about who made the things of this world their ultimate value. Status, power, money, fame, fortune, pleasure, physical pleasure. And that is what they've built their life upon. And what happens is their soul begins to to shrink up. They become self-absorbed. They become more self-centered and cold and calculating, and maybe even cruel to get the thing that they think they, they need the most which is what this world has to offer. There but for the grace go I. I mean, this is something that we all, I think, struggle, struggle with. But Jesus says, if you are my servant, you will follow me uh, to the cross. Your life in this world can't be your ultimate value. Something has to be sacrificed for my sake. You have to give up your life for me. There's a saying by Jim Elliott, who is a missionary who died, who gave up his life at a very young age. Became a martyr for Christ. He reached uh, in, in an attempt to reach a tribe that had never been reached with the gospel of Jesus. And Jim Elliott has this saying He is no fool who gives up what he can't keep in order to gain what he can't lose. He is no fool who gives up what he can't keep. What can't you keep? You can't keep your life in this world, it's going to go away. But what can you never lose? The eternal life of God. Relationship with God now and forever. And so that's not a foolish bargain. No, that's a wise bargain. To give up making the things of this life number one. And instead receiving the life that Christ can give. Which is eternal life. So how might Jesus be asking you and me to die to your life in this world what needs to die in my heart in your heart and mine, in order so that the life of Christ can take up greater residence what's the seed that needs to die so that we can be more fruitful and that's the question I think we need to wrestle with so for some people it might be it might be the quest for more status and, and power more money material possessions and Christ might be calling us to sacrifice this for the sake of his kingdom. It's not that these things in and of themselves are are wrong. They can be used by God for his good. And he does want to use these things, our status, our possessions, our position for his good and for his glory. The problem is making those things an end in and of themselves, making them an ultimate value. Are we willing to risk our reputation to sacrifice that in order to stand up for Christ? Are we willing to sacrifice and be ridiculed in order to stand up for the truth of of Scripture on hot topics, on controversial topics? What is Christ calling you and me to sacrifice? It might be our plans for the future. It might be a hidden sin or habit that's keeping us from, from growing in Christ. I don't know what the sacrifice is in your case. Of course, I don't know that. All I know is that when you follow Christ in your journey of faith, He's going to turn to you and say, this needs to die in your life. At some point, you you need to make a sacrifice for Christ. And I think those of us who've journeyed with Christ know that he he does that and has done that and will continue to do that in order that his life might take up more residence in us. So that's a pattern for a disciple of Christ. It's a cross-shaped life. Of giving yourself and entrusting yourself to him who can give eternal life. Now, Jesus has the right to call us to this. Because I don't have the right to call us to this, but Jesus has the right to call us to make these sorts of sacrifices because he sacrificed for us. And in this section of scripture, we get a get a sense of the costliness, just a little sense of the costliness of his his sacrifice, when he says in verse 27, now is my soul troubled. You could translate that now is my soul in turmoil. It's the sense of something is churning within Christ as he contemplates what's about to happen to him as he goes forward towards the cross that awaits him. Now is my soul troubled. Do we understand that, yes, Jesus is the divine Son of God? He's fully divine, but he's also fully human. That means he was a man of flesh and blood like us. And as he understood what the cross entailed, he naturally wanted to shrink back from that experience. Do we understand? I don't think we can. The sight of heaven the depth of the suffering and sacrifice he went through for us. The the physical pain that he faced on the cross was great. The spiritual anguish that he faced, the degradation and humiliation of being stripped naked and hung while people mocked and ridiculed him. This is what was before him. And he said, my soul is in turmoil. In our reading from Hebrews, it says that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. To him who was able to save him from death. So he's crying out as he faces the cross. I think this is a reference to the Garden of Gethsemane. My God, my God. He says, uh, he says, rather, father, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your be done. So Jesus was willing to. Make a great sacrifice for us. And he calls us to make a sacrifice for him. That is to give our life over to him completely. And as we understand what Christ has done for us, it does help us. To sacrifice for him, to loosen our grip on the things of this world. He's not asking us to do something he's not already done. There's a story of Alexander the Great the great conqueror, from the king of Macedonia. And, and one thing about Alexander the Great, one thing that made him so great is that he was willing to go into the battle with his soldiers, with his men. He was willing to suffer alongside of them. And that increased their loyalty to their king. There's one point in the history of Alexander the Great, I think when he's going into battle against the Persians. He's been on the march. Him and his men have been on the march for 11 days, over 400 miles. And they're running out of water. And they're practically dying of thirst. And they come to a halt. They come to a standstill. They can't go any farther without water. And somebody comes into the camp. Some other soldiers. With water for the king. For Alexander the Great. And they have this water in animal skins. And they present it to him. And they pour it out to him. And they put it in a helmet. And they give it to Alexander the Great. And he takes the helmet. And he looks at the water. And he looks at his men and he gives the helmet back and he says, I can't drink of this. I can't slack my thirst If these men are still suffering. I'm going to suffer with them to the very end. And at that, the men rallied and they got on their horses and they said, we're going to go forward. We're going to keep going on out of loyalty to our king who's willing to do that for us. That inspires Loyalty, doesn't it? When we see a leader. Ask of us what he's willing to do himself. It's Christ who was crucified for us. Who's saying, take up your cross and follow me. And then Jesus promises. What does he promise? He promises fruit when the seed dies. There's fruit first death, then life. First, the. Then the crown and he promises the honor of the father. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. The world will the world. does Does he promise that the world will honor those who follow him? No. But God, the father will honor you. And you'll have eternal life. And then we see the fruit of Jesus's sacrifice here in this passage as well. I just want to point real quickly to the. The fruit of Jesus' sacrifice, the good that came from his being lifted up on the cross. Verse 28 Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The name of God, the nature and character of God that's what the name means. It means it's a revelation of his nature and character. His Name is glorified at the cross because his character is revealed at the cross of his son, Jesus Christ, the character of God. If you want to know what God is like, look at Christ and particularly look at the cross of Christ. And there you see the justice of God. God's attitude against sin and evil, but also the mercy and the love and the forgiveness of God at the cross. The father is glorified. Through the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. That's some of the fruit that came from Jesus's sacrifice. And then Jesus says in verse 30, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Satan. He's talking about the devil. He's talking about the evil one. He's talking about the enemy Of the world. And the enemy of our souls. But Jesus knows that through his cross and resurrection. He is going to defeat. And he has defeated. Satan. And uh, this is a preview of the ultimate victory. over, Over Satan. That's to come at the end of time. So that's the fruit that's come from this. And then finally verse 32. And when I'm lifted up. From the earth, I will draw all people to myself. So the cross has this magnetic power, doesn't it? You know, the rulers said, we're going to put it into Jesus because all the world is going to him and we're going to crucify him and that will be it. They put him on the cross and all the world came to him and keeps coming to him. Millions, billions of people have come to the foot of the cross of Christ. But not everybody in the world. There's still this division. Not everybody recognizes the glory of God in the cross. How about you? When you look to the cross of Christ, are you thankful, God, that you drew me here? That you revealed yourself, your love, your mercy, your justice here at the cross for me. Are you thankful that God has used the cross to draw you to himself? It's the only way that we come God. It's the only way that we know the true God is through the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. Have you found the life that God offers at the cross of Christ? Let me let me just close with this. Uh, This is something that Pastor John Stott wrote in his book, The Cross of Christ. John Stott was an Anglican minister in England, in London. He traveled all over the world preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know there are competing ideas of what God is like in this world. John Stott in in this quote talks about the Buddhist vision of God and how that compares to the cross of Jesus and why he finds the cross so compelling. Here's what he wrote. I've entered many Buddhist temples in many different Asian countries and I've stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth. But each time, after a while, I turn away, and in my imagination, I turn instead to that lonely, twisted, torture figure on the cross, plunged in God-forsakenness. This is God for me. This is the God who laid aside his immunity to pain. and entered the world of flesh and blood and tears and death. This is the God for me. Amen. Amen. How about you? Is this the God for you? This is the God we are called to proclaim to the world. And as we lift up the cross of Christ, he will draw people to himself. We love you and praise you, Lord Jesus. Amen.